Thank you. It's good to be here with you. I know that um, next week you have Fritz, who's the uh, gentleman that's in Bowling Green with us. And y'all just need to just, when he gets here, just say, we would rather have Brian, okay? Regardless of how it goes today, just when he gets here, say, we really like Brian and we would rather him been here. Just just to humor me and, uh, um, and, and... I'll probably owe him something along the line there, so um, that'd be great. It is good to be here with you. We are in Bowling Green. We've been there since um, 07, and uh, we are encouraged with what God is doing. It is a um, slow but uh, um, hard, but we're having fun um, doing what we believe God has is, is, is called us to do, of establishing a, um, a beachhead there in Bowling Green. Um, and um, we pray that God would continue to add His favor as we move through this next season of ministry. And you can pray for us there. And would love to talk with any of you about it. I think I left some, some brochures. The name of the church is Grace and Peace. Uh, when, I may have shared this last time I was here, but when we were selecting a name, I, I wrote down several names, and I would ask everybody, waitresses and people at grocery stores and stuff, which name they liked the best. And I asked one lady, uh, who was a waitress, I said, um, one of our names is Grace and Peace. And uh, gave her the other ones, and she said, um, I said, which one do you like the best? And she said, oh, grace and peace. So then I said, well, why do you like it? And I, you know, just looking for the opportunity just to kind of get into a good conversation. And she said, well, that's where I'm from. And, and I just kind of did that too. I just kind of went, hmm. She said, Grayson County. And I went, oh. So she thought I was saying grace and peace. But uh, anyway, it was interesting to me, but I learned a lot. We're learning a lot. It's, uh, we're having fun. Pray for us when you think of us. Uh, and come visit us anytime. We would love to have you there on a Sunday evening. Um, we are in the midst of a series um, that uh, I'm going through for the next several weeks where I am taking several passages throughout uh, Old Testament and New Testament and looking at the story of God's love, the story of His redemption, and then kind of in- intersecting it with our lives. And, and how that story of love cast um, its, its light up on different aspects of our, um, of our life. Last week we looked at sin, and we looked at Genesis 3, and how the story of redemption and how um, His covering is sufficient for our sin. Uh, this week we're going to look at the, the passage that we're going to look at here uh, in Psalm 32. I was uh, glad to see that in the confession of sin, it was a a confession from Augustine, Augustine of Hippo, uh, the Latin monk, uh, that really changed the face of Western Christianity. He also wrote, uh, he wrote his Confessions, which was a a big title book, uh, but he also wrote another book called The City of God. And um, Augustine once said, he said a lot of things, but one thing he said was he said, if you're not a great sinner, then you cannot have a great Savior. If you're not a great sinner, then you can't have a great Savior. Uh, Psalm 32, he actually had it inscribed on the wall beside his bed. And uh, it was actually the psalm that was read to him during his last days. He had that read to him over and over again. Regardless of where you are on the spiritual spectrum, whether you are a committed follower of Christ, or whether you're a reluctant uh, comer to church, or you are a skeptic of all of anything that smells of religion, Um, the reality is that life uh, deals with us, and we deal with life in such a way 
that we all carry around shame and guilt to some degree, uh, some greater, some less. And the need to know what to do with that shame and guilt is something that is, is very relevant. Um, so wherever you are uh, along the journey, um, you need to know what you do with your failures, what you do with those things that you have done along the way that maybe nobody else knows about. What do you do with the shame and the guilt? We look to the Bible really to find some examples of, you know, that, uh, that had that issue, the shame and the guilt. I said already, we talked about Adam and Eve last week, and Adam and Eve are easy. Um, they were created in a perfect world, and then they sinned, they disobeyed what God had said, and guilt and shame entered in. And God, or they, they attempt to cover their sin with fig leaves and... That was uh, the way they attempted to deal with their guilt and shame. Abraham. Abraham sinned, uh, and it resulted in him just kind of ignoring Hagar, and just kind of shoving her away and, and releasing her to somebody else to deal uh, with, with that. But, but you see in there, while well, it never comes right out and says that there's shame and guilt, undoubtedly that there's, there's, there's shame and guilt for a, a mistrust of God and, and not really following through on His promises. Peter uh, he was called by, um, by Jesus to be a follower. Uh, Jesus spent all kinds of his energy and time, no doubt, with Peter, answering his questions, correcting him, being patient, uh, and then at, uh, at the Lord's deepest and darkest uh, need, when he is approached of whether he knew his Savior the denials. The Apostle Paul, before he was the Apostle Paul, was Saul, and he stood giving witness to the execution of Christians. How do you live with that kind of guilt? How do you live with that kind of shame that comes out of just living life? These are just some of the examples in Scripture. You can go outside of Scripture and you can think of John Newton who gives us the beautiful hymn, Amazing Grace, and how he spent much of his life and much energy, uh, much energy in, in the slave trade, and how he participated in literally thousands, and his life was wrecked by the guilt and the shame up to his death of the effect that that had had uh, on the lives of, of many. What about you? Do you think about, uh, in this day and age, um, Facebook is a big deal. And uh, it's been an amazing phenomenon uh, to see how that has worked itself out. Uh, as high school f- classmates have requested to be a friend, and instantly thoughts come to my mind of how, well, they were the person that I made fun of. What about you? Maybe somebody you bullied. That every time you hear that name, you're wrecked with the shame and the guilt for having treated them in a way that was inappropriate. What about the money maybe you took from your your mom's purse or your dad's wallet or your grandmother's um, purse that they don't know anything about? You know it. It's part of your life. It's part of your memory bank. 
and guilt and shame, and you just don't know how to deal with it. Or that item that you lifted from the store. What about that lie that you told about somebody that turned out to not be a lie at all? But in telling that lie over and over again, it's wrecked their reputation, and they can never have it back. What about that divorce, that abortion? Anything from your past that it doesn't take a whole lot to scratch across the surface of it in your life is immediately you go right back there and you're covered up with the shame and the guilt. And you just wonder, how can I get rid of it? You may be a follower of Christ and you're still wrecked with that shame and that guilt. Secret sins, moral failure, and any other time that you may have just flat out blown it, um, guilt and shame are with you and they follow you around like your shadow, ready to be revealed at any moment. Are you there with me? What do we do? How do we deal with it? We're going to look at Psalm 32, and Psalm 32 is not written by some idle um, just theologian that sits down and says, hey, this would be a good psalm to write. It's written by King David. It's written by David, the king who was at his house when all other kings were at war, and he looks and he sees Bathsheba naked, bathing on her rooftop, and has an affair. And as a result of that affair, he pulls Uriah, his good friend, his commander, off the field to come home in hopes of covering up his guilt and his shame and ultimately, murder occurs. He's the one that writes this. And he writes it out of that call to worship that we read from, Psalm 51. In Psalm 51, one of the verses says, I'm going to teach this to other people. I'm going to talk about this with other people. And they believe that Psalm 32 is the result of that. Psalm 32 is the, is the message that he wants to get to us that there's actually the possibility, and I would say the reality, that after gross sin, after terrible guilt and shame, that the healing that can come, you can actually be healthier on the backside than you ever were on the front side. And so he gives us this psalm here, and we want to look at it together today. Let me read this psalm and then pray and then we'll jump right in uh, to discuss this passage. Psalm 32, right in the middle of your Bible, number 32. Blessed is he whose transgressions are forgiven, whose sins are covered. Blessed is the man whose sin the Lord does not count against him and in whose spirit is no deceit. When I kept silent, my bones wasted away through my groaning All day long. For day and night your hand was heavy upon me. My strength was sapped as in the heat of summer. Then I acknowledged my sin to you and did not cover up my iniquity. I said, I will confess my transgressions to the Lord. And you forgave the guilt of my sin. Therefore, let everyone who is godly pray to you while you may be found. Surely when the mighty waters rise, they will not reach Him. 
You are my hiding place. You will protect me from trouble and surround me with songs of deliverance. I will instruct you and teach you in the way you should go. I will counsel you and watch over you. Do not be like the horse or the mule, which have no understanding but must be controlled by bit and bridle, or they will not come to you. Many are the woes of the wicked, but the Lord's unfailing love surrounds the man who trusts in Him. Rejoice in the Lord and be glad, you righteous. Sing, all you who are upright in heart. Let's pray. Our Father, as we open this text up here, um, it is very possible that um, a topic of, of shame and guilt will open up wounds. And God, you know that it is not my intention to expose wounds, but it's my hope that where there are wounds exposed, you would pour in the balm of healing. So God, my tongue is not wise enough. Uh, I would just make things worse. So I am in desperate need of your Spirit to do that. Do what my hands and my mouth cannot do. Use your Word. Use your people. Use this service to do that, we pray in your name. Amen. I want to look at three, under three topics for this, this, uh, this sermon. I want to look at why uh, confession is necessary, the necessity of confession. Then I want to say, I'll look at who we are confessing to. And then finally, what are the benefits of confession? The necessity of confession, who we confess to, and the benefits. Why is confession needed? Why is confession needed? Because guilt and shame are real. They're as real as the seat you're sitting in. They hound us. They are with us everywhere we turn. He depicts this in verses 3, 4, and 5. A very graphic depiction. Did you pick up on it as you read it? When I kept silent, the the stuffing it in... Nobody can know. When I kept silent, I didn't want anybody to know my secret. My bones wasted away. Inward to outward. Isn't that the effect sin has on us? It destroys us inwardly. It just eats at us. It tears us up. And it works itself out. I see it at home every day. I saw it last night, and on my way up here, preaching this sermon to myself, I realized when I get back home, I've got to sit down and talk to my three boys and apologize and ask them to forgive me because of my anger towards them. Because of, no doubt, sin in my life that has caused me to speak out to them. They asked me, Dad, why are you yelling at me? And I just say, I don't know. But it works itself out, doesn't it? Inward, and you're angry, you're bitter, you're resentful, you're arrogant, you're pride. It it, it works itself out. And here he says, my bones wasted away. My groaning 
all day long. Day and night, your hand was heavy upon me. The weight and the burden of bearing your sin. You can do it. And I can do it. But it would be similar to saying, I'm going to be the foundation of the new building that's going on downtown. You can do it, but it'll crush you. And the weight of that just piles up over and over again. Just looking through the headlines today, saw another account of someone who had committed suicide because of a particular sin. And it's all over the news every day, and it's a part of our lives. He describes all too well the pain that we know when guilt and sin and shame are a part of our lives. The destruction of sin, the dealing with the voices that nag you when you're in your car alone, when you're trying to lay down and go to sleep at night and you can't rest and you wake up in turmoil the next day. Verse 2 is interesting. It uses the word deceit. It says, blessed is the man whose sin the Lord does not count against him and whose spirit is no deceit. It's interesting because one of the things that you see about Adam and Eve is there seems to be some kind of a deception that goes on. They really don't understand what has happened. And God comes to them and He says, why are you hiding? And He says to them, is it because you disobeyed? They really don't have a category of what to do when you sin. They don't repent and they don't run. They just hide, don't they? But it's this outside voice that speaks into their world and says, you're deceived. You've been duped into thinking something. And the reality is, we bear shame and we bear guilt in our lives and we are under this deception that if we just go on long enough, if we just keep battling, if we just do enough good stuff, if we just feed all the good stuff, if we just stack it up, then that shame and guilt will be eradicated and be taken away. And it doesn't happen. It may last for a season. You may numb yourself to it. And you may just go through, through life at that point, numb to every emotion lifeless. And we've met people, maybe you're that person. There have been seasons in my life where it's just easier just to numb myself than to deal with it. I was in Atlanta this past week and um, heard a story a friend of mine was telling. He said he, he, he runs a campus ministry over in South Carolina and they were scheduled to have a speaker come in and uh, he actually heard on the news that there had been an outbreak of the swine flu uh, in the community where this man was coming from. And uh, he thought, I need to call and, and make sure, because that's a small community and anything could happen, and the last thing we want to do is kind of get it and bring it here and stuff like that. So he calls him, and he, as he's talking to him, he said, I just heard on the news that your particular community has an outbreak of the swine flu. And he said, I didn't have anything, any knowledge about that. What are the details? He said, well, there was a particular church that had been on a mission trip and, 
And some of the individuals, one of the individuals came back with it. And he said, I'm so glad you said that. My daughter was with that trip. And so he ended up not coming. And I thought of that in light of this right here, of how we are so often blinded by our sin, and we need someone to speak into our life from the outside that knows better than us, that sees more clearly than we do. And he was able to say, you probably don't need to come. And it turned out that, sure enough, there was a swine flu outbreak and um, it was, uh, was going to affect a number of people in that community. We can be blinded to, uh, to our sin and deception and deceit can be a part of our life. Whether it's intentional or, or not, it can just be there. Um, we need another perspective. We long for that. Why is confession needed? Because it gives us someone to go to. I was sitting at the Panera restaurant uh, trying to get some study and then I realized I couldn't get on because uh, my computer was dead. But as I was sitting there trying to study, I was close enough to a table where this very um, animated lady was, was talking to a friend. And I couldn't pick up particulars, not that I was trying to, but it was, it was loud enough that what I did pick up was that there was some decision made at her work that upset her. And she went on and on and on in a very irritated, upset kind of way for probably 10 or 15 minutes. And the lady she was talking to, I, I couldn't see her face. I would have loved to have been able to see her face in this rant that this, she was going on. But when she finished, the lady that was sitting across from her spoke back to her. And her voice was, I couldn't hear her. But what I heard the lady saying was, you're right. That's good. That's fair. Thank you. You're right. You've helped me. Because someone was able to give her insight into something. She needed someone that she could vent to. She found it, and then that person spoke back to her and was able, allowed her to see who she was. We need that outside perspective. Confession, when we run to Him, it is another uh, perspective on our sin and it, 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 it's able to show us to see the reality of what's going on. Are we hiding something? Are we uh, dodging something? That shame and that guilt, it, it, He is able to, to go right at it. We want to be heard and we need to be healed And in this psalm, God offers it. Look what he does. He says, blessed. Who is it that's blessed? It's not the perfect husband. It's not the perfect wife. It's not even the obedient child. It's not the I've got it all together mom. Who is it? It's the one whose sins have been forgiven, whose sins have been covered, and whose iniquity is not counted against. The one who has borne his soul to God is called blessed. It's interesting. He uses three different words for sin in that passage. The NIV doesn't capture it, but it's transgressions, sins, and iniquity. Three different words to kind of reveal the completeness of sin. And he's saying, give it all. Don't hide anything back. Give it all. And you're blessed. There's healing on the backside of the sin. 
Why is confession necessary? It's necessary because we need total and complete forgiveness. It's necessary because in verse 6 it says that even if the world comes to an end through a flood, which it did at one time, there's still one who's listening. In verse 7, we need it because we are under His protection. We can be under His protection. And the God that we once hid from, now we can hide in. So you may say, that's great, Brian, but um, I've been burned too many times. I've, uh, I've confessed to friends, I've said things to friends, and I've even confessed to God. And then I showed up at a church and they, they made fun of me. This happened. We, we have an individual that um, uh, I've talked with this, this past year um, who in their church were assured that if they would confess their, they, they confess their sins to them, and it was told that it was going to be made, it's going to be kept quiet, only to find out that the next time that, that they went to church, it, was, it had been broadcasted by the leadership. I tell you, it's really difficult to convince somebody at that point that confession is a good thing. Somebody that's been ripped in half and their life has been shattered, wrong or right, if they're wrong or right, the trust factor is out the door at that point. And she came to grace and peace. And... She's still there. And I'd like to think that God is, is at work restoring that trust factor. You can pray for me. I preach this tonight. And she'll be there. But what are the... What is it? Who is it that we confess to? Um, is he going to be like that leadership of that particular church that blabs it all? are going to use it against you in some way to kind of back you into the corner and blackmail you. Is that the way God works? Um, maybe you don't think that your issues are quite serious enough. Or maybe uh, they're just not big enough. Um, or maybe they're too serious. Maybe He can't handle it. Um, we're not going to confess our sins. And we're not going to bear our souls until we know that there's a safe place. Right? You're not, you're not going to do that until you know that it's a safe place and that you're not going to be wounded on the backside of this. If it's not in our best interest, we're probably going to hold off on that. I read a story about John Ortberg. He's a pastor of some church, wrote some books, and this is one of the illustrations in there. And he tells a story about the purchase of the mauve couch for their house. I don't know, I, I grew up in a, a, a generation where we had dining rooms and we had furniture in there and like nobody used it. Are you familiar with that, that, that time where you had couches that like nobody sat on and when you did, they were the most uncomfortable couches anywhere? I kind of got this image here. They got this mauve couch for one of those rooms. But nobody was to bring food or drink, certainly not put your feet on it. It was mauve, of course. And of course it would show stains. And so... The mom made it clear, uh, Mr. Ortberg's wife, no food, no drink on the mauve couch. If you disobey, you will be punished to the fullest extent of the law. Well, you know what happened. A jelly stain was found on the mauve couch. So a meeting was called 
And it was not a pleasant meeting, mind you, because mom was on the warpath at this point. There's a jelly stain on the mauve couch. Who did it? Of course, nobody owned up to it at that point because mom's on the warpath. Not a very safe place. There's a jelly stain on the mauve couch. Who is going to own it? None of the kids ever owned it. And John Ortberg says, I was not surprised. I was not surprised at all because I knew that I was the one that had put the jelly stain there. Point being, unless it's a safe place to confess, we're probably not going to go there. And in this passage, and I think that that's just a huge... That, that's what got me on the way up this morning. That's what I, got me when I told my wife, I need to speak to the kids this afternoon. Because as a father, what kind of atmosphere do I invite with my kids? Is it one of I've got a stick and I'm ready for you to pay the consequences for anything you do wrong? Or is it a welcome embrace to say, listen, you're going to blow it. You are. You know, we'd like to keep those to the minimum, but you're going to blow it. And what I need to tell my son and what I need to tell him probably every day is, son, you are going to blow it. But what you need to know is that when you blow it, I need to love you and I want to love you. And I do love you. And even more than that, there's a God of your faith that continues to pursue you every time you do. Over and over again, He cries out to you, I forgive you. I forgive you. It's so beautiful here. In verse 5, He says, I will confess my transgressions to the Lord. Kind of thinks back to the prodigal son where he's rehearsed this repentance in his mind. I'm gonna, this is what I'm going to say. This is what I'm going to say. I'm going to get this right. And before he ever has a chance to say it, you forgave the guilt of my sin. You're forgiven. The eagerness of this, of this one we are confessing to, to forgive and to restore and to see us made whole again. What an incredible encouragement, a joy that Jesus always welcomes sinners, those with questionable character into His life, and there was a freedom for them to struggle I ask you, is Christ pres a church where people are free to struggle with their sin? Or is there such an attitude? And this is something we talk about at Grace and Peace. Is there such an, an ethos that exists that you've got to pretend that you've got it all together? And if you don't, then you're just a sore thumb. Christ was that sort of person. He was the man... That the outsiders and the not have it all togethers flocked to. And the pretenders didn't like him. In this psalm, David invites all those who failed, who have sinned, who have blown it with their wives and children, lost it with co workers in front of the neighbor to run to God while he may be found, to make him your hiding place and not hide behind the wall of anger or under the shame 
of fear and guilt. David is calling us in this passage to a greater health than we had before. You know, I, I don't know a whole lot, but the basic idea of LASIK eye surgery, it used to be, it may be completely different now, so bear with me here, was that they go in, they cut these slits in your eye, and that you think, well, that's kind of counterproductive. But they go in and count, cut your eye up in just little bitty slices, and then they cover it up, and what happens to the eye is it heals back correctly. Now, uh, that was the way it was explained to me. We run to Him and we understand that this one that we are running to in confession, He really does have our best interest at heart. He really is desiring to bring healing to our life. If you don't believe that, then understand this and hear this about the gospel. He left heaven and came to this neighborhood, this slum, so that you might know of His love. That's how much He loves us. That's how much He wanted to show His love. That's how much He wanted everybody to get it. Is that He would leave a place of perfection and enter into our mess so that we would know that there's hope in the midst of it. That's why and that's who we go to in confession. What are the benefits of confession? What do we get out of it? Um... Well, it's like the lady at the Panera. She needed someone to listen to. And this psalm does remind us of the great benefits of confession. And it's not so much that we ben- it, God benefits from our confession. When you confess that sin earlier, He wasn't up there going, I had no idea. Thanks for reminding me. But confession is, a, is, is really an avenue He's given us to help us to heal. Something He knows about us that helps us. And we do it corporately. We do it together to say, hey, we're a bunch of sinners. And if you're a guest here today, that may have been the weirdest thing for you to see a confession of sin where people were naming like their sins. But you need to know if you're a visitor, you're in a must of a bunch of sinners. And I'm the chief here. Welcome. <laughs> What do we receive? What are the benefits we receive in confession? It's a way that He loves us in our weakness. He knows we need someone to hear our hearts and He gives, us, gives uh, Himself to us. The one who's been redeemed and is being restored by Christ's life and death, and in Christ's life, death and resurrection. One benefit, rest. You no longer have to play the game. You can own it. You can be honest. You don't have to pretend. How refreshing it would be. You know, I said this last week in sermon. It's amazing how defensive I get and have to feel like I have to defend myself when a simple question like, are these your shoes in the living room, is asked by my wife. You husbands know what I'm talking about. The defense just pops in right there and you feel like you have to defend. Yes, honey. Why can't I just say, yes, honey, they are mine, I'm sorry. But I have to make some excuse. The kids, what, you know, the phone rang, you know, something to cover it up. Rest. We don't have to pretend. We don't have to keep up the front. We don't have to hide from our sin. We are free from the slavery of keeping secrets. 
Elliot Spitzer was the former governor of New York. And I read a story, actually a, a little article that was written about, about him as he was caught up in this prostitution scandal. And what was told about him was that before, while he was governor, when he would go out and walk his dog, he would walk this large, masculine kind of dog. And then after the scandal, like most public figures, they kind of go into hiding for a little and they rebuild their image. And now if you see him walking the dog, he's no longer has to walk the masculine dog. He walked the masculine dog because it was an image thing. People identified him with this masculine type dog and he left the poodle at home. Now when you see him, he's got this little fuzzball of a dog that he walks. And he said this, If the whole country knows you are a disgrace, then does it really matter what kind of dog you walk? What if to be a different community, to be a different body of people, Christ Pres took and believed the gospel and said, yes, I'm going to own my sin. And I'm going to stop pretending. And I'm going to be real. And I'm going to be honest there. I'm not saying you just... You know, I, I'm, I'm speaking tactfully here. How do you do that? How do you do that and, and not pretend? Parents, what if you went to your kids and said, I blew it. I'm sorry. I lost my temper. This is why I lost my temper. Will you forgive me? the whole country knows you're a disgrace, then does it really matter what kind of dog you walk? So rest. The second is even more beautiful. You know, the church is a beautiful mess, isn't it? In Bowling Green, it's a beautiful mess. In Owensboro, it's a beautiful mess. Wherever it is, the church is a beautiful mess. But God has given us the church to come alongside those caught in sin, to love and to see them restored. I'm thankful that one of the things that we practice in our denomination is is, is church discipline. And it's a way in which uh, a body comes alongside not to highlight and to make somebody wallow around in their sin, but with the hope that they can be restored and brought back to life. David speaks of this in verse 8. He says, I want you to know. I'm going to instruct you and teach you in the way you should go. I want the body to get this. I want everyone to kind of be captured by this idea where he encourages us to deal with our sin and own up to our failures so that we don't have to bear the guilt and the shame. I have to tell you that over the last couple of years, really over the last year, I've had several friends, good friends, that have been involved in some kind of moral failure. Two of them have been friends from seminary that were my neighbors. This past week I was, I was uh, with a friend who is the pastor to one of those couples. And um, he told me about this story. And I want to read it. Bear with me here. It's just a portion of a letter sharing the testimony of this, uh, this lady who is a part of the church, not my friend. This is not my friend, but you'll see. 
My name is Angie, and I've been freed from my slavery to sin and death because of the work of Christ through Scripture, preaching the Word, mentors, and friends speaking the truth to me. I was involved in an affair with my college campus minister, which ended after five and a half months. I'd been very close to his family and very involved in my campus ministry community. I helped to destroy a marriage, a family, and many relationships, and myself when I walked in darkness and chose to follow after sin. I confessed to my pastor and later my family and friends. I met with my pastor and the elders of my church to confess and to submit to their discipline and guidance in order to be restored to the church. My pastor had me submit to and talked with wise women, mentors, almost daily, and we began a study. I remember the first lesson being so hard for me. I spent hours and hours trying to answer the questions, but when they talked about finding freedom from bondage to sin, I did not know what I needed freedom from. My sin was obvious because I had had an affair. And yet I felt like I could not put into words what my problem was and what I needed freedom from. I was angry and confused about my sin. I would rewrite my answers because I felt like I did not fully understand the truth or the depth of my slavery to sin. The more I worked through Scripture and applied the truth to my life, I saw what lies were in my heart causing me confusion and making it so hard for me to finish my lessons. My emotional connection to my sin died as I delighted in Jesus and turned from all other lovers to rejoice in Him. I found that truth and life and even immeasurable joy and peace began to rule my life. I felt myself being freed from overwhelming darkness. God had saved me from my sin. He saved me from an undeniable death. This is obvious to me now. I felt myself dying during the affair, but I was deader than I knew. He reached down and pulled me out of darkness and shame and gave me repentance and brought me into light. God used and is still using His Word and the church to surround me, preach to me, and save me. God used my family, old friends, and new friends in the church to show His love for me. He is even using the wife of the man I had an affair with, who I've sinned against vilely, to show His love for me. Is the church a place where sin and guilt can be freely admitted? A community not interested in covering up, but more interested and concerned to fill people up with the truth of the gospel that there is forgiveness in Christ, in Christ alone. The story of God's love shapes us and it changes us. And I hope and pray that you will hear that love song of the gospel being sung today. As we come to this table, let me just... um, This is probably not the way you normally do it. I apologize, but I feel like I need to say this to you. She said, 
She wrote this. The Sunday that she was getting ready to come back to the table. She said, pray for me about this Sunday when I take communion. I'm afraid and I think my stomach is in knots about it. It's going to be good. Taking communion will be scary and part of me would rather stay in my seat. But I feel thankful when I get to go to the table. I feel like I will be putting myself on display when I go up there. I don't really want that. I do want Jesus on display. I'm afraid, but I guess I don't mind if the church knows I'm a sinner who is being welcomed back to the table. I want to be able to go joyfully before the church, believing in Jesus, that I am welcome at the table. Will people praise God for a sinner coming back to the table? Or will they feel shame and embarrassment for me when I go up in front of them? I'll just have to believe what God believes about me and not worry about it. Some people might not understand my joy while in my shame. I'm not sure, but I think some people I know feel shame or pity for me out of unbelief that Jesus covers my shame and their own shame. Some of them want to take the blame off of me and put it on the other individual because they don't see how Jesus covers my shame and theirs. And she says this, They don't know that they can look at my shame and their own and rejoice that Jesus covers our shame and makes us clean. In the world's eyes, it seems like it should be embarrassing and shameful to go before the church and believe that Jesus and the church welcomes me back after I hated them and shamed myself. He gave the invitation that Sunday to come down the table. But before he did it, he asked her to come to the table first. And she came to the table. Not, any, not, not a whole lot of people really knew, which was a testament to the, the way that church handled things. But then he said this. He said, who would come and encourage this restored child at the table this morning? And the wife of the man whom she had had the affair with came down and stood with her. I don't know a better way to, to invite you to the table this morning. This is a table for sinners. It's not a table for the squeaky clean. What qualifies you for this table is that, there, that your life is a wreck and that sin is a reality in your life. I don't know how to explain that anymore. If you don't believe you're a great sinner, then you will never have a great Savior. But when you do, He is more than sufficient. I invite you to this table. If you are trusting Christ, if your confession is made to Him, then be assured that He hears your confession and that He has forgiven you countless times even before you get it out of your mouth. This is not a Presbyterian table. This is not any special table. This is the Lord's table. And it's at this table that you come and you receive grace. That you are encouraged to live a life that that glorifies Him. He is on display here. It's not about you and it's not about me. It's about our Savior who left heaven, 
came to earth so that we could have life. And this is just a visual token reminder where he stoops to us and communicates to us that the final word is not your sin and your guilt and your shame, but it's his redemption. So I invite you in just a minute, if you've taken Christ, if Christ has taken hold of you, then receive these elements and take them in. If you've not taken Christ, then I would say and plead with you today, today is the day of salvation. Run to Him and then find an elder, find someone to talk to and tell them about your story. Let me pray. Our Father, we we pray as we come to this table that um, you would take these very common elements and you would set them apart. You would use them for your glory in the building of your kingdom. That you would strengthen uh, the faith of those who believe and are trusting you through this really kind of strange custom, this strange meal. For those, Father, who are not in a place of of taking this meal, I pray that they would be honest with themselves today and that they would pass on the meal, that they would not pass on receiving your invitation to salvation. And so, Father, I pray that you would use this for your glory as you would use all things. In your name I pray. Amen.